When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rulure Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, joining you all the way from Colorado in the United States. And today I am joined by Peter Stewart, who is uh, in the uh, the new office uh, for Rulure in London. Peter, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm actually in a soundproof pod and on your office, which is very fun. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure two people are screaming at each other about something kind of irrelevant outside, not related to Rulure, but I'm here blissfully unaware, just looking at angry gesticulations. You look very professional. I, you know, I'm in my garage, kind of shivering because it's a little cold in here. And <laughs> you guys have really upgraded yourselves over there. <laughs> yeah, it is warm in here, but it is freezing outside. I can tell you, London is cold as hell. So, yeah. Oh wow! No, it's it's actually quite warm today. It is supposed to cool off. Uh, we've uh, we've had historically low precipitation, so it's actually been a very mild winter. I'm just sort of a, a wuss and uh, shivering in my garage. Uh, but we're not here to talk about me shivering. <laughs> Well, I feel like we have a tradition of talking about weather at the start of these podcasts, so we're upholding that, keeping all the weather fanatics. Yeah, we've done that. They'll be tuning out now once the weather chat's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives people a moment to warm up for to us. <laughs> uh, but what we are what we are going to talk about today, though, is you know we we're we're both gear nerds, and and twenty twenty one was a good year for gear. Uh, lots of interesting things happened. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the key moments uh, of uh, in gear and tech that happened in twenty twenty one, but also. Uh, look forward to 2022 and what we expect to see as, as some of the key moments of tech uh, moving forward. But first, let's start with with start with a look back. It's January. You know, we're all in a trainer. Like we're all kind of deep in Zwift world right now. Uh, so it's fun to kind of look back when we were actually looking at bike races and, and actually riding outdoors. Um, Peter, let's start with you. What what are some of your key tech moments, tech developments, uh, some some products, some gear that that you think made an impact in 2021? There's so much to talk about, really. You had you had uh, you know a lot of developments in group sets. You know, SRAM went to Axis for Rival, which is really cool, like bringing wireless to the mainstream. Jurace, Di2, the new Di2 system was really interesting. Obviously, like you know, the the world class, ultimately the best group set has been upgraded to an even better group set, which is really cool. Um, I think, like beyond that, like I think at races we saw some super interesting developments that, again, five years ago would have left us all just like completely mind blown. Like the idea of uh, tubeless tires winning Paris Bay or a one by group set winning Paris Bay, and two things together would have been just too much for your average bike you know, to handle. It would have been, yeah, you know, 
catatonic. So you know, it's it's easy because so much is going on, but really substantial developments. And then, so I think we've seen you know tubeless go mainstream. We've seen Jura's Di2. We've seen SRAM rival axis, and you know within that we've seen lots of like really interesting little things on the pro side. You know. Um, like people experimenting with new tech, uh, people failing with some new tech, and uh, we've also seen lots of just really cool new products and innovations. You know, like the classified hub that automatically shifts. You know, uh, a front kind of use a planetary gear to remove the front derailleur's necessity. Um, you know, we've seen the first SPD uh, power pedal, um, and we've we've seen a lot of interesting new genres like ultra aero bikes or cyclocross bikes that are becoming more like gravel bikes i mean yeah the world's just kind of tipped on its head in terms of bike stuff which is impressive given that no one can get any bikes so the industry is actually pushing on at a time when they're not selling anything which is we don't know they're selling lots but they're not delivering anything perhaps is a better way to put it yeah yeah i mean innovation doesn't stop um and you know all that was a lot to unpack what you just listed i think there was so much going on but i think what's important to note there is that uh some of the key areas of development were in drivetrains i think that was that's something to really focus on and i think part of that is because you know while frame development certainly hasn't peaked it's it certainly has plateaued i think and and i think we'll see another um era of, of frame development and and big leaps there you know in the future but right now i think we're we're kind of at a point where they're going to be as good as they're going to get for a couple of years and so it, it it leaves engineers to sort of focus on other areas of the bike that can uh really be streamlined and and made to be uh, more efficient and the drivetrain is probably one of the most difficult ones um, one of the most enigmatic ones. Uh, we've seen so many different types of drivetrains over the years come and go. But really, to me, what what, uh, what is notable about all this is that SRAM's uh, ETAP access system, the wire, fully wireless system, has pushed other drivetrain manufacturers and has made them have to innovate. And I think that is a big testament to SRAM's success. Uh, and so Shimano, you know, notably, I think, and, and to some to some ridicule, we'll say, um, launched Ace this year as a semi-wireless system. Uh, let's talk a little bit. Have you ridden that system yet? Yeah, we've ridden it. Yeah. Um, we've had one test bike, which has been pretty cool to ride and, you know, super sh- quick shifting, uh, you know, definitely slight evolution. I mean, previous Duros is, is so good that it's really hard to start saying that it's like a sea change in functionality. Um, but, you know, I really like the, uh, you know, wireless, semi-wireless setup. Um, and I think generally having extra gear offers that extra kind of, you know, the 12 gears. It's tighter steps between gears, but a greater range, which is ultimately what so many users want. So, you know, you're always just there into a gear, moving one or two teeth a lot of the time. Um, and so, you know, long long kind of gradual climbs that just that little bit easier because you've got a bit more choice and um yeah so it's you know it's no doubt the evolution you not only do you have wireless slightly more superior motor systems and stuff and ultimately an extra gear which uh you know we can criticize and we have often criticized the need for more moral gears on this on this uh podcast but at the same time it is a, a really noticeable palpable change that suddenly you've got one more you can turn it up to 11 like spinal tap did <laughs> Yeah, and 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 again, I think you know it's to me it's still a little enigmatic that Shimano chose to still include wires, and I and I think that's a response to sort of battery life and 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 speed and the shifts, um, you know. And we'll talk after the break. We're going to talk a little bit about predictions for twenty twenty two, and I've got a hot take there. But um, you know, I think I think that's an interesting approach to differentiation between SRAM and Shimano. You know, SRAM clearly. Uh, 
has gone full wireless quite successfully. Shimano is now semi-wireless, but they're claiming faster shifts and better battery life. I think we are seeing lines drawn in the sand about what's going to happen in the future uh, and where development's going to go. And I think that was an interesting um, development in 2021. Another drivetrain interesting development was, you know, like you said, SRAM uh, brought, you know, its its ETAP system to uh, Rival, which, you know, is a response, I think, to consumer demand for uh, more affordable group sets in general, more affordable bikes in general, and still with, without, you know, sacrificing all of the best technology. Uh, and, you know, in that vein, I've heard whispers uh, this is nothing confirmed, but I've heard whispers that uh, Shimano is going to bring DI2 to 105. Um, so again, moving forward, you know, I don't know if you've heard those rumors too or not, but you know, my my understanding is that SRAM SRAM has really gotten in the driver's seat here and sort of has forced its competitors to to respond. And I think that's really neat because that's something completely uh, different than than what we've seen in the years past, where SRAM was sort of playing catch up. It was the underdog, the you know, the guy. The guy that kind of had to to say, "Hey, look at me, look at me." Now they're they're sort of driving some some of the innovation here. Another interesting thing, actually, about that movement is that with the Durace DIT, it's obviously easy to forget there was also an Altegra DIT, and there's no Altegra mechanical. So what we're seeing with both SRAM and Shimano is a phasing out of mechanical group sets, um, which is quite a bold statement because you know five six years ago we were still saying, "Is it is it electronic or is it mechanical?" And now it just seems that it's all electronic. You know, a decent group set, a topping group set, effectively has to be electronic. And you know, it's, it's a bold statement to not have developed a new Altegra mechanical. is is pretty pretty bold. So, and you know, we can talk more after the break about twenty twenty two. But if they do, if they do, as your rumours suggest, do a Di two one hundred five, it will almost be like complete full circle. That you'll be a end to end. If you've got a high end road bike, you're wireless. You're 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 definitely electronic, and you're probably wireless as well to some capacity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this, that is really why, well, you know, you mentioned the term sea change about, you know, DI2 not exactly being sea change, but I think that is really what the sea change is, is sort of this shift to, uh, you know, electronic group sets throughout the line, not, not just for high-end bikes, not just for mid-range bikes. Um, you know, it's bringing that, that technology, which is, which is honestly clearly, uh, more efficient and, and more, and to me, in my mind anyway, easier to use, bringing that to bikes for most consumers. I think that's a really interesting uh, notion. Beyond uh, drivetrains, <laughs> other things happen too. Um, some of the, you know, some of the things happened in racing, which I think obviously, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the biggest and loudest uh, forum for, for anything tech, right? And I think one of the biggest moments of the year was at Paris-Roubaix. You mentioned two of the moments. One was uh, Lizzie Danen winning the women's uh, Roubaix on a one-by setup, and Johnny Mascone leading the race, looking like he was going to win, and then having mechanicals. His, his, he got a flat, and then he crashed, and there was a mechanical. Um, you know, th- those were two moments that sort of made people think differently about what's possible at some, let's say at the hardest race on the calendar, right? The most, the most demanding on gear. And it was a wet one for the first time in a long time. So let's start with Danon. Um, she won on a, uh, on a one by, um, was that surprising to you or was that sort of a, a foregone conclusion that at some point somebody was going to go there? You know, I've always been a champion of the one by on flat kind of certainly flatter profiles, but Roubaix has a few little, you know, bergs in it, like a few little steep inclines. So I think the the general skepticism amongst the pros to accept that, and maybe it was a case that 
you know the, the women's team uh, was 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 willing to be more experimental and try this out. You know, they didn't have the same huge commercial and like precious, but maybe more importantly, actually, not even commercial precious, probably just not the ingrained kind of cultural approach to what kind of kit they use that men would have, you know, because they've, you know, been riding tubeless and two-by their entire careers, as the women would have arguably as well, but perhaps with maybe less tech tradition and, and you know, with, uh, with high-end women cycling growing so quickly, maybe it's just a bit more of a liberal mindset towards it, which meant that the women were willing to try you know, two big divergences, which is tubeless and one by. Um, and I think it's super significant that um, Lizzie Dagnan won on a one by group set. Um, and I would have liked to have seen, yeah, like, let's see, you know, Van Aertz or uh, Ina Vanderpool have a go at it because if Lizzie can do it, you know, she had an exceptional ride all on her own, you know, like solo, which is, you know, probably where you're going to have the most demand for range and for incremental steps. So to win like that is, is pretty, I mean, it's inspiration on the bike. Blew my mind. So I saw it before the race and I was like, that looks crazy. And to see her win, I was like, this is just too much. So it's just like uh, super excited to see it. But um, yeah, I think, I think last time I saw a one by group set in the men's peloton at high level, I think... Is Bauke Mollema's um, bike at the World Champs in Harrogate. And I think he actually got some flack from his teammates and I think didn't finish the race. So as the first kind of steps into one by in the World Tour, that wasn't a great start. But I think Lizzie, you know, one of the most historic wins in the last 10 years, winning the first one in this and doing it at one by group set is exceptional. So that was, I think, I, I was surprised to see it and I was really happy to see it. And I hope that it leads to like bit of a split where you might find there's those cat classic spikes do have one by group sets because as i'll always say you know much as i think in more gears everyone i was saying that, i think one by does suit a lot of consumers really really well so i'd like to see better one by options on coming off the shelf personally yeah what's your take i i was i was not surprised to see her win on it i was more surprised to see her using it honestly uh you know it's it takes a leap of faith for a pro to to uh, leave behind the, the the safety of tech that that's proven. Uh, it takes some guts and some courage to to really do that because you're putting your you're, you're putting your success on the line. Um, and I, I think that's a hard thing for pros to sort of uh, take that leap, especially if they think they have a shot at actually winning the race. So, you know, I'm not surprised she won on it. I am surprised that she used it in the first place, which I think is really cool and really a, a gutsy move. Um, I also think she she provided some of the coolest gear photos after she ripped up her her hands, you know, and they were bleeding and all over the hoods. And my gosh, it was fodder for photographers; they loved it. <laughs> so I think maybe we'll see we'll see Lizzie Dynan uh, uh, emerge from this with a new glove sponsor. <laughs> um, you know, and and Moscone on the on the men's side, you know. Honestly, anytime we see a flat in Roubaix, and we know that there are some people using tubeless and some people not, I think the discussion of tubeless comes up. And, you know, who's running tubeless, who's not? Is it more susceptible to flats? Is it less susceptible? Um, that that conversation has not abated at all. I think uh, tubeless has improved so dramatically, and I think pros are starting to use it more. But, you know, there's still that that narrative of of is it more, is it more, uh, reliable or is it less? Should they have two, uh, tubulars still? Um, I don't know. Do you know if, if Moscone was riding tubular, uh, tubeless this, uh, this Paris-Roubaix? I think he was, but I'm not sure. I'm going to incite a whole load of hatred on Twitter from both sides, but I believe he was riding tubeless is my understanding. I've not looked it up today, but at, at the time, I think we were all talking about the fact he was on tubeless. And actually, I believe I did speak 
You know, actually, I took a photo of Moscon's bike before the race, and I think I asked the mechanic, and he did tell me, despite fluke, that he was riding tubeless tires. So, um, and I think because they were on, were they on uh, Zip or was it Princeton Works wheels at that point? I'll have to look to, to be sure because I know they've they've done some funny wheel things this season, but um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to say it without looking. We can we can double double check that. But I always think about the the tubeless debate as you know when you have one high profile flat from a, a tubeless system, there's probably 10 more people who didn't flat on their, you know, on their tubeless setups. Um, it just so happened that Moscone was leading the race at that point. Um, so to me, that's probably the biggest uh, tech moment of the year where tech had sort of a big impact on a racer's uh, results. It's interesting. I mean, you know, in terms of that, like if you did flat on tubeless, like at least tubeless, the tubeless tire system you would be using would be something that's vaguely commercially viable for you know, public users versus, you know, FMB or, you know, these kind of like um, degassed tires. Like you know, they were like 200 pounds a piece and virtually only made for pros. So, you know, more flats, less flats, better rolling. It's just an unrealistic comparison because they're just a completely elitist, crazy, unattainable bit of kit ultimately. So I think that's, uh, to me, that's an interesting element. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's kit that's more appealing and attainable for the normal person. Um, you know, funny that Cancellara actually said at Ruler Live a few months ago that he thought that it wasn't as serious for people to do Paris-Roubaix on 32 millimeters and 30 millimeter tires because he said if it wasn't 25 or 28, it's no longer it's no longer hard. It's just like doing a cyclocross or like mountain bike event or something, which is quite funny. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to take a quick break here, uh, and then when we get back, uh, we're going to we're going to start looking forward. Uh, so, Peter, we're going to we're going to fire up our prediction machine and uh, and see what we think tech in twenty twenty two is going to look like. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinnewi, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. So my name is Oren Peleg and I'm an investor in Lekka. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry, which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people on two wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis, and I believe that two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around companies building on the strong communities that they have. And I think Lacquer's business model in the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment. And we are back with the Ruler Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, and I am joined by Peter Stewart all the way over in London. Peter, we, we just recapped all of our uh, our finest tech and gear moments and, and themes from 2021, and there, we could have gone on for hours because there was just so much that happened. Uh, 
let's talk 2022. We are now, it's January. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to racing starting really at the end of this month. It's, uh, it's imminent. Teams are at team camps now. Uh, let's talk about where we're going in 2022. What are we going to see as the major themes uh, in gear and tech this year? Let's, let's start with uh, what do you think is the, the most notable in your mind of what, what we are going to see in 2022 in gear and tech? I think one thing uh, I'm interested to see is actually the continual convergence of bike categories. And I wonder, you know, I'm actually thinking, is 2022 the year that the cross bike just disappears? Is the cross bike going to be here in 2022? Is anyone going to release a new cross bike? Like the highest profile cross bike release last year was the S-Works Crux. And I'm not going to get myself in trouble here with Specialized, but that is not a cross bike in my view. <laughs> so don't, don't at me. But like, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a kind of cool gravel bike. Yeah. I mean, it, it fits the bill. It depends how you define cross, but it's not a traditional, you know, 33 max clearance cross bike. Um, and equally road bikes, you know, and the crux could pass for a road bike, you know. So it's, that stuff's weirdly converging. I think as our discussion, and this, and this is another interesting point we kind of touched on earlier on, is the electrification, you know, and, and, as you said, you'd heard rumours of uh, you know 105 Di2. I think, you know, I've, I've not heard the same, but I totally expect that to be the case. And um, and I think that electrification and, and bringing electric group sets to the masses could really change uh, a lot of a lot of cycling for a lot of people. One thing that's sort of been teetering on the edges for a long time, but never really took hold, is sort of more advanced uh, kind of measurements on bikes. And I think you know we've now got more power systems than ever, and more. No accessible price points, but we've also got a lot more um, like drag measurement tools, for instance, and that's something I've been surprised that that hasn't yet seemingly broke the mainstream. Obviously, quite committed time trialers use it, but people that are really fixated on their speed, you know, I, I'd be interested to see whether we'll get a more a more a more mainstream price point, a more mainstream take up of people training and trying to improve their drag coefficient because it's a much more significant uh, metric than than purely power or you know speed. And then probably the last thing I'd say is um, probably contrary to the talk of convergence, I'm seeing a little bit of the the return to aero. You know, I think I think we've had a few years that everything got really aero, and then everyone started thinking actually it's gotten as aero as it's going to be, and now suddenly we're like actually look, there's a new aero thing. We're going to go quicker. So you know we've had we've had like you know um, really really fast skin suits commercially from Lacole. And, um, you know, Ribble has released the Ultra, which is, I don't know if Ribble's big in, or you guys are conscious of it in the US, but, you know, for, for British, it's, it's, it's probably the, the biggest, uh, you know, standalone British bike brand at the moment. And, um, and their bike is, uh, is, you know, Ultra, Ultra, looks like a bat bike. And, and I'm, I'm interested to see whether we might see a slight return, you know, as the, the Venge has disappeared and a lot of other bikes have become more kind of convergible we just see a crazy category of super rapid triathlon strava hunting bikes um so that's kind of what interests me at the moment how about yourself you know it's interesting that you mentioned a lot of those 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 themes are sort of on my list too and i think one of the interesting things is that you're talking about um you know people who are not necessarily going to be on the race course who still want to go fast and chase koms and things like that and i think that may be why we're seeing some arrow elements trickle down into uh, bikes that those people are more likely to buy. Um, and, and when it comes to training and, you know, the drag coefficient, uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that one too, because I've used a few of those, uh, 
systems to, you know, there's a few that mount on your handlebars and they can measure very slight changes in your body position, uh, you know, different gear. Is this helmet faster than another? In the past, the the sticking point with those, aside from price, has also been um, reliability. And so, you know, for a while, those systems kind of went quiet. And I imagine that's because there have been refinements to make them more reliable. So I think we will see those at some point in the near future uh, reemerge as a as a very viable training tool, especially among the pros. Um, so I think that's something. But I think more um, base level in the cycling industry, thematically, you know, the the electronification, <laughs> as it were, is not going to stop at drivetrains. I think... We're seeing more and more e-bikes uh, of different kinds, commuter bikes, race bikes, uh, you know, bikes that are meant to go fast, bikes that are meant to go slow and carry heavy things. And in that, in that vein, I think, uh, you know, electric drivetrains, electronic drivetrains make a lot of sense because then you're working off a centralized battery that's very big. Uh, and that allows you to have reliable shifting for a long period of time. Um, so I think we're going to see more uh, of that sort of integration, uh, lights, you know, uh, I know Cannondale just launched a bike where everything is integrated uh, in terms of lights and a, and a radar system and things like that. Uh, as as people get on bikes again, you know, and, and we saw a resurgence of, of interest in bicycles during the COVID uh, era that is still still going on. Uh, you know, as more people take to the roads with uh, on bicycles, it is incumbent upon the bike industry to convince people that these are not only just useful tools but also safe. Um, and so, you know, electronics, I think, are going to play a big part in that. I mean, the other part of that is, of course, infrastructure and laws. But, uh, you know, from what from what manufacturers can do, I think a lot of that is going to come down to technology. What kind of technologies can they integrate that will help people feel safer on bikes? Um, so that's my sort of hot take on, on, on electronics. And I also do think, you know, I think we will see uh, an electronic uh, 105. I think we're going to continue to see some of those uh, those high-end tech that uh, are going to trickle down a little bit. Um, and I think we're going to see more tubeless. I, I don't think tubeless is going away. I think it's only going to get more prominent in, in the in the Peloton and among the masses. I think it is the future. Um, and I, by the way, I'm looking at an image just to confirm something we said in the first segment of the show. I'm looking at an image of Johnny Moscone uh, at Paris-Roubaix, and he is riding the the uh, Princeton Carbon Works wheels. Um, again, I don't know if they're set up tubeless, but it sounds like it was. You talk to the mechanic, and it sounds like he was set up tubeless. So let the let the let the flame war continue. <laughs> um, but I don't see tubeless going away. I only see it getting more reliable. Uh, I see more uh, collaboration between wheel brands and tire brands to make sure that the interface between the two works better. Um, that's been a sticking point for a while. You know, I'd be interested to really know what the, and be, I don't know who would really give you a an good answer in the pro peloton, but whether tubeless is slightly more appealing because it's something that can be ridden in race scenario, but actually something that's a realistic wheel that someone might train on because, you know, um, back in the day, you know, the old days, people, pros would ride tubeless on deep section carbon wheels but they tubular sorry on deep section carbon wheels then their training bike would just be like some r50s some really basic uh shimano you know or where whoever like zip 101 uh metal alloy wheel with you know clinches and i wonder whether there's a factor there that actually enables them to ride the same same kit you know all, all year round and that's definitely you know, i mean like kind of extends to the fact that the training bike used to be a thing for pros and it used to be, oh, what, what's their training bike? And now their training bike is their race bike because disc brakes and, you know, 
uh, ultimately you know, stuff like tubeless and electronic gears. It's, it's made it's made a lot of the maintenance that would be kind of quite hazardous not an issue because people can just ride their ride their their, their race bike in in the off season and come race day it's it's ready to go. You know, there's a bit of a clean, but it's not like the old days where you'd have a rim brake surface that would have been completely like whittled down and it wouldn't be functional. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Just a thought. Maybe that's something to do with whether the pros would actually prefer to have uh, tubeless clinches because it offers a bit more consistency between training and racing. But just a thought. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to the old axiom that you know you practice how you play, right? You know, and so having that consistency between your training bike and your regular bike, you know the equipment, you're used to it, you're used to the feel of the bike. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you want to have, you know, you want to have equipment that can handle both. Um, you don't want to have that specialty equipment that you have to hop on on race day and be like, oh man, is this is this going to be okay? Um, you know, that consistency is definitely a boon, I think, for for racers. I'm going to hit you with another hot take here. You ready? I think that we're going to see uh, integrated one-piece handlebar stems go away. Uh, yeah, <laughs> fire up the Twitter machine. Here we go. Um, I think we're going to see fewer and fewer of those types of cockpits. Sorry for those of you who hate the term cockpit, uh, <laughs> which is not to say we're going to see the end of integrated uh, cable, you know, in, in internal cable routing. But what I think there, I think there is a severe backlash against. Uh, one piece bar and stems because they are not adjustable and they're very expensive. And so I think we'll continue to see them for a few more seasons, especially, you know, if it suits a pro in certain races. But I think for the general population, they just don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, they look really cool, uh, but you're, you're stuck with one position. Uh, you, you, you know, you can't, as your body changes, the cockpit doesn't change. You can't adjust it. Um, so we're seeing more adjustable systems, which usually involve, um, spacers or, you know, a two piece system that, that integrates cleanly for aerodynamics, but it still allows some adjustment. So I think we're going to see the end of true one piece bar and stems within, I would say the next several years, but I think we're going to see a pretty drastic decrease in them over the next few model seasons. Yeah, well, I think that, I think that's really realistic. Um, and I think, I think the one piece, yeah, I think the evolution has been clear that these two, a bar and a stem with some flexibility, some movement, you know, up and down, you know, and uh, yes, some rotational stuff, you know, with, with the tolerance of the internal um, cabling is it's definitely an evolution. It's definitely better. I mean, like, I don't, like, yeah, it's, it's cleaner. It's more aerodynamic, but... Uh, there's a functional thing. It's more aerodynamic. You're not comfortable, and you're right in an aerodynamic position. Then it doesn't really offer a gain. So, you know, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I think, um, I think most people won't be sad to see it go. Like, you know, I think, I think what you might see is like, you know, the Ultra Ribble does have this unique, patented, new handlebar that's ultra aero and has a cleat that attaches the front uh, shifters. But, um, but I, I do think maybe a lot of that where the one pieces will be dramatically hyper aero things, and the rest of them will just be two piece integrated two-piece if that's even a term now you just got me thinking on wild predictions though and here's a wild prediction that you know brace yourself everyone but um i think maybe one-sided road pedals will eventually die out and be overtaken by the likes of speedplay and spds because what's the point in just having one side you know it's annoying it's really hard to clip it's not really, obviously it's fine to clip in but it's easier to do it if you have a double-sided pedal and People ask me, you know, people, uh, one of the things I often get asked, like, why, why do you have a look or Shimano you know, SPDSL versus a normal SPD? And they say, oh, it's more rigid, it's a larger contact error. But I'm like, that doesn't really make any sense because, like, the, the soul's, like, you know, fact 11 carbon, but whatever they call it, but it's hydro-high modulus. And they try twisting or, or like, 
deforming like a high-end carbon road shoe. It's bloody impossible. They're so rigid. So whether it's connected with two bolts that are quite close together or two bolts that are far apart, like, and also like, yeah, show me someone coming out of an SPD pedal when they're sprinting. Maybe it happens all the time. Maybe I'm just not sprinting at a high enough level, but you're pretty much in there and mountain bikers aren't constantly coming out of their pedals. And obviously mountain bikers don't want to come out of their pedals either. So, you know, part of me thinks, will we just see like one, will gravel be this gateway that people start using SPDs and start thinking, is this, is this just better? Like, what's the point in the one-sided road pedal? Oh, that is, that is a very hot take. I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't even thought of that. That's, that's an interesting one. I don't, I don't even know if I have an opinion on that because it's never even occurred to me. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, as somebody who's been to a lot of gravel races, and, and you know, I was just at Unbound uh, Gravel, the, probably the biggest gravel race in the U.S. Uh, this past summer, and everybody's on mountain bike pedals. Nobody's on, well, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's somebody out there riding road pedals. But, you know, the, with gravel, of course, you know, mountain bike pedals make a lot more sense because you'll probably be walking at some point. Um, and I think that that versatility is important to them. But, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe as people sort of embrace gravel and get used to the mountain bike style pedal as a dual sided entry, maybe that translates into road. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen dual sided pedals on the roadside before. And, you know, of course, like you said, most notably uh, speed play. Um, you know, why, why not? Um, but I do think there is something to the surface area and that connection between the shoe and the, the pedal. Is that enough? I mean, is that enough of a reason to stick with the one-sided pedal? I don't know. Um, aerodynamics, I don't even know if that matters at all. If it's, if it's you know, <laughs> it's probably pretty negligible. Who, who knows? I mean, boy, you, you, okay, that one took me by surprise, Peter. <laughs> I, have, I have no opinion on that yet. I'll have to, I'll have to formulate an opinion and <laughs> come back to you on that one. Uh, that's a hot take. I, I want to hear from people on that one. If you're, if you're on, um, if you're on the, the, uh, the Twitter machine, please tweet at us. I want to hear your thoughts on that one. All right. Those, those are some good, good ways to end the show, Peter. Um, Peter, if they have questions, comments, or want to uh, challenge your bold prediction about dual-sided pedals, uh, where can people reach you on social media? Uh, I'm on every channel except for TikTok uh, at Peter Stewart 3 all one word, S-T-U-A-R-T. I've got two forenames. Never trust someone with two first names, but uh, that's what they say. But yeah, and, uh, and obviously Ruler Magazine, I see all that as well. So at Ruler, at Ruler Magazine, hit us on any channel. And we'll hit back. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll argue back. Uh, and of course, if you want to reach out to me, I actually have a new Twitter handle. I am abandoning my old one because mental health reasons. I can't, I can't argue with people anymore. So I'm just going to talk about bike stuff at slow guy, fast ride on Twitter, uh, at slow guy on the fast ride on Instagram. Uh, so please do reach out. I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, tell me what, what you think. What did, did we get this right? Did we get this wrong? What do you th- see happening in 2022? We'd love to hear from you, Peter. Thanks for uh, spending some time with me today. Uh, and we will all catch you all next time on the ruler tech podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.